Our Father, we thank You for the promise of the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. And we pray that as we worship in the examination of the Scriptures this morning, that 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 hope would prove to be a certainty that steadies us in this sin-rocked, trouble-producing world. And that we would be rooted, stabilized, anchored because of the hope of Christ. That will be a transforming work on your part, but we know that you do that very kind of transformation. So would you work that in us? We pray in the name of Christ and for his glory. Amen. Life is difficult. But you don't need me to tell you that in order for you to be convinced of it and for it to be true, do you? Suffering has always been the way of living in this world. Even, or perhaps better said, especially for believers. One historian said this about the early church. Every Christian knew that sooner or later he might have to testify to his faith at the cost of his life. And when persecution did break out, martyrdom could be attended by the utmost possible publicity. The Roman public was hard and cruel. We hear that and we nod in agreement, yep, living in this world is tough. But the reality is it is hard to suffer well, isn't it? It's hard to be in physical pain without complaining. My wife will attest to that fact in my life. It is hard to see injustice and sin and crime against others and not be angered and even outraged. It is hard to be repeatedly sinned against by a family member without becoming bitter. It is hard to experience repeated financial setbacks because of the influence of things in this world and breaking and, and all kinds of other influences against us pulling at our wallets without becoming cynical. It's hard to fight against sin, to see the repeated occurrences of your sin against others and against even people that you love. It's hard to see that without despairing. When? When will this be removed? When, when will this change? Am I, am I consigned to always be this way? If I were to speak the sentence, the suffering person wants, how would you finish that? When we, when we suffer, most of us simply want out of the suffering. We simply want it to end. So we would say, the suffering person wants no suffering. The suffering person wants to be eradicated from the suffering. We yearn for our suffering to go away. And when we suffer, our longing is not to suffer. We, we, really, we really don't care how it happens. We, we really don't care how it goes away. We just want our suffering to go away. Now. Not later, now. In Romans chapter 8, the Apostle Paul is reminding the Roman readers of of two great truths. One of of the truths is the power of the Spirit to work in the life of the believer. And, And all through this chapter, in fact, 20 times in this one chapter, the Apostle Paul addresses the Holy Spirit by name. And he keeps pointing to the Holy Spirit's work in our lives. And what are the things that the Spirit of God does in us? And then secondly, he talks not only in general terms about what the Spirit does, but very specifically the work of the Spirit to assure us of our salvation. The work of the Spirit to convince us of the fact that we are saved when we are saved and to give us the security and assurance that we are saved. And in in the middle of that discussion, Paul, in a sense, pulls back the curtains to the reality of life and acknowledges 
there, there is suffering in this world. There, there are difficulties and trials and troubles in this world. And he points to that suffering and, and denotes that there, there are responses to the suffering in the world from the world itself, from creation itself. So he says in verse 19, the anxious longing of creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. The creation itself is, is longing and groaning for something different. In fact, he'll say in verse 22, we know that the whole creation groans. So creation is groaning over the suffering in this world. But not only is creation groaning, verse 23, we also ourselves having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves. We also, as believers in Jesus Christ, groan over the the sufferings and difficulties and trials and burdens and weights of the world. And not only the creation and not only us, but notice verse 26, in the same way the Spirit also helps our weaknesses, for the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. The Spirit Himself is groaning and longing for something. And this morning I want to draw your attention particularly to verses 22 to 25, where we will see specifically how the believer should respond and think when he suffers. Because when he is groaning, he's really longing for something. He's, he's desiring something. He, he wants something. What is it that the believer desires when he suffers? And the Apostle Paul, in these four verses, verses 22 to 25, as he considers the suffering of the believer, says, the believer's suffering is superseded by his hope. The believer's suffering is superseded by his hope. The believer's suffering in this life is overwhelmed and surpassed by his confident expectation of the next life, of, of what he will receive when he receives the completion of his salvation. And in, in playing this out, Paul points to six mind-renewing thoughts that, that the believer ought to be consumed with as he considers suffering in this world. As he's groaning and as he's longing, these are six thoughts that ought to be transforming in his life. How should we think about our suffering in this life? The first thing that the Apostle Paul says in verse 22 is we have suffering we have suffering. In verses 19 to 21, we, we saw the suffering that is in the created world and how the created world itself longs for our redemption so that as we are redeemed, that also the creation will experience redemption as well. So verse 19, the anxious longing of creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. In other words, there is something that is going to happen in creation that when we are redeemed, when we are changed, creation also will be redeemed and changed. And he points to that same thing again in verse 21. Creation itself will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So when we are set free, verse 21, when we are freed from slavery to sin and we are set free to all that we have in Jesus Christ, at that same time, creation is also freed from its constraints and the things that hold it down. And and this suffering that the creation is experiencing and that we see in this world. This is the suffering that was inaugurated way back in Genesis chapter 3. So Adam and Eve sin, and then God decrees a judgment against Adam, against Eve, against the serpent, and against creation. And everything that we see in this passage has its roots back in the fall of man and the implications of man's fall for the world. And what what the Apostle Paul notes here is verse 22, we know, we know that the whole creation groans. All of creation is groaning under the influence of this judgment that God had against it and against sin. Every aspect of creation is affected by that judgment. Notice he says, the whole of creation. So when we say that when man fell into sin, 
There is no aspect of a man's being that is not touched by the sin. Now, we are not as bad as we could be, but there is nothing in us that remains unstained by sin. Sin has touched every, um, as, as one person has said, every molecule of our lives is touched by sin. Every aspect. Creation is the same. There is nothing in creation that remains untouched by God's judgment against it in Genesis chapter 3. There's no part of creation that remains in its unblemished pre-Genesis 3 state. All of it has been stained and touched by this judgment of God against it. And so it says in verse 22, because of that, the whole creation is groaning. It's not just groaning because of, because of what it's, what's happening in it, but it also says it is suffering the pains of childbirth. Like a woman in labor, the pain of this world is significant and intense and real. This, this is not pseudo suffering. This is the, this is the real deal. The pain that comes through fallen creation is real. Broken bones and, and cancer and colds and hurricanes and ice storms and car breakdowns all produce genuine pain and genuine suffering. The suffering is real and the pain of suffering is also real. It is genuine. It is significant. It is powerful. If you're not, if you're not convinced about the significance of pain that we experience in the world. Paul likens it to childbirth. Just go ask your wife or go ask your mother about what that pain is like and let her inform you about the reality of the pain that we experience in this world. It is genuine. But it is also like the pain of childbirth in this. It is intense and it is real, but it is not permanent. In that moment, in that moment it might seem like it's going to last, but it's passing. And a week later, or a few weeks later, or a few months later, or a few years later, that woman who has birthed that child looks back to that event and she smiles over the wonder of the life that has come from her and what God has done and the gift that she has received. Was there pain? Absolutely. Is there joy now? Yes. Is the pain permanent? No. It's, it's a passing kind of pain. And, and the Apostle Paul would have us to know that, that the pains that are experienced in this world are passing pains. In fact, John Calvin has noted that these are pains and these are um, related to birth. So he says these are birth pangs and not death pangs. This is suffering that anticipates that something better is coming, that God will produce something better on the other side of the suffering. Notice that the Apostle Paul again reiterates that this is something that is happening throughout all creation. So he says, the whole creation, all of creation is groaning and suffering the pains of childbirth together. So all of creation is together in this process. It it is everywhere. It is pervasive in this world. The suffering and difficulty and trial and burden. And notice he says at the end of verse 22, it is together until now. The suffering of the world was true in the moment that God made the decree in Genesis chapter 3. It was true when it was going, when time was passing through the patriarchs in the book of Genesis. It was, it was true as the, the nation of Israel was developed in, in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament. It was true during the kingly reigns over, over Israel. It was true during the prophets in Israel. It was true at the time of Jesus' birth. It was true at the time of the apostles. And it is true today. There is suffering, pain, trial, burden, weight, trouble in this world until now. There was suffering then, and there is suffering now. Suffering is real. We have suffering. 
let me, let me give you three ways to think about suffering in light of this verse. One is this. Suffering is real. Suffering is real. Friends, be sympathetic to others in their plights. You, you may not know the extent, the exact nature of their suffering. You, you, you may have not suffered in that way and you may not know what that feels like. But friend, their suffering is real. It's genuine. It's painful. Think, think about our Savior and how He responded to those who were suffering. Genesis, or excuse me, Genesis, first book of Matthew, or first book of the New Testament, Matthew chapter 14, it says this, verse um, 14, Jesus heard um, about John the Baptist, withdrew from the boat to a secluded place by himself. When the people heard this, they followed him on foot from the cities. Matthew 14, 14. He went ashore and saw a large crowd and felt compassion for them and healed their sick. Why did Jesus feel compassion for them? <laughs> because they were sick. I think it was just... It, w- it was probably such that everywhere Jesus looked in that crowd, there was an obviously sick person. And he was compelled by that. He was moved by that, and he responded by ministering to them. We see something similar in Matthew fifteen thirty-two. Jesus called his disciples to them and said, I feel compassion for the people. Why did he feel compassion? Why was he stirred from the inside out? Because he said, because it says, they have remained with me now three days and have nothing to eat, and I do not want to send them away hungry for they might, they might faint on the way. The, they, the sense is not that they were complaining, oh Jesus, we're hungry, we're hungry, feed us. It's, it's that Jesus saw their need before it was even verbalized, and he was moved with compassion towards them. We see something similar in chapter 20. Uh, verse uh, 34, where it says, Moved with compassion, Jesus touched the eyes of the blind men, and immediately they regained their sight and followed him. Jesus saw the need, and he was compassionate. Shortest verse in the Bible, John chapter 11, Jesus wept. Why did he weep? He wept because of the suffering in the world. It, it wasn't... It, it was compassion for Mary and Martha, but it was compassion for Mary and Martha and beyond that for, for the implications of, of what sin caused in this world. And, and in fact, the, 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 the word that, that is prior to that, I think it says, uh, the translation says something like he sighed. It, it has the sense of he snorted in anger. This, this, is, this is Jesus compassionate and moved to action because of the despair that he sees in people around him. Jesus looked at people in this created world and he saw their suffering. Oh friend, see the suffering of people. The pain is real. This is, this is what we do when we're followers of Jesus Christ. Colossians chapter 3. Those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, verse 12, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience. Oh, friends, be compassionate towards people. They they are suffering. And how do you know if the person you are talking to is suffering? How can you tell that this is a hurting person? Just check to see if they're breathing. And if they're breathing... They are sufferers. Isn't that true? It's at different levels, right? But if I were to ask you, to be honest, how many of you have a significant hurt in your life? Every hand would go up. I'm convinced of it. We all hurt. We've all been inflicted by difficulty from this world. Oh, friends, suffering is real. Be compassionate towards it. Secondly, don't seek a refuge Away from suffering. Now, now I don't mean by that um, that it's a sin in order to to seek a remedy to your suffering. So, so if you get a significant cut this afternoon, please go get stitches. That that's an appropriate thing to do. 
We like stitches. We like people to be fixed up. Go, go do that. If you have a headache this afternoon, it's legitimate to take some aspirin for it. But do not, do not attempt to create a refuge where you can escape suffering entirely. Do, do not create this, this mindset and world mentally where you have said, I can go to this place and I can escape suffering. I, I have a place, I have a category for a life that is, that is suffering free. I have a category for, I don't deserve suffering. I don't need to suffer. I'm at such a place in my life that suffering for me is wrong and I don't deserve it. No friend, we live in a world where there is suffering. Don't, don't create a refuge and pursue a place where there is no suffering to be found again. Between Genesis 3 and Revelation 21, that place where suffering is absent does not exist. Between Genesis 3 and, Genesis, and Revelation 21, there will always be suffering. And to seek a suffering-free experience in this world is to set your heart on something that is unattainable and will leave you unsatisfied, discontent, and disillusioned. One writer, one commentator on this passage simply says, the world's anguish is a continuing phenomenon. That The anguish of this world is continual. Set your mind on that and don't presume that you can get to a place where you'll never have to experience suffering again. Thirdly, be hopeful in your suffering. Suffering is real. Suffering is expected. But it is not permanent. This life is not permanent and the suffering in this life is not permanent. So, so just as the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 8, that it's like the birth pangs, those birth pangs go away. The pain of childbirth goes away and the pain that we have in this world will go away for those of us who are in Jesus Christ. Suffering is not the final word for us in this world. The renovation of this world and the final redemption of mankind is the final word. So one thing that we need to think about is the reality that we have suffering. Second thing we need to be thinking is this. We have the Spirit. We have the Spirit. Verse 23. And not only this, and not only the pain of the world, and not only is creation itself groaning, not only that, but, but verse 23, we also ourselves having the first fruits of the Spirit. Now, now the word first fruits is kind of an agricultural and worship term. So, um, the Old Testament Exodus 22, Exodus 23, Numbers 18, Deuteronomy 18 talks about the fact that when a worshiper has something that comes in in his agricultural um, provision, so he, he grows a crop and he gets some kind of grain, or he grows grapes and he gets wine, or he grows olives and he gets some oil from the olives, that that when he gets that, the very first part of it he takes to give in worship to the Lord. So instead of having his needs fulfilled, he fulfills his need for worshiping the Lord and honoring the Lord by giving to him above all and first of all. Now when he gives that gift, he doesn't have the whole crop in yet. He doesn't know that there's not going to be a fire. He doesn't know that there, that there's not, that there's going to be a lack of rain. Or he doesn't know that there's going to be too much rain and, and wash the crop away. When he gives his first fruit worship, it's also an act of trust. There's more that is coming. And God will provide for me. And God will sustain me. Now, notice what the Apostle Paul says. He takes that image and he says, we ourselves having the first fruits of the Spirit. Not giving the first fruits, but having. In other words, here, the, act, the first fruit is not the act of the believer, but it is the act of God to the believer. And when he says it is the first fruit of the Spirit, we have 
the first fruit of the Spirit, it's, it's as if God says, here, let me give you the Spirit of God as the first part of your salvation. It's not all of it. It's, it's as it were the down payment and more is coming. In fact, Paul takes a, a very similar concept in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 13 and then uh, chapter 4 verse 30 as well as in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 he talks about the Holy Spirit giving, being given to us as a pledge. So he says in verse 21 of uh, 2 Corinthians 1, Now he who establishes us with you in Christ and anointed us is God. So God is the one who ties us together in the body of believers as, as a body in our salvation. Who also sealed us and gave us the Spirit in our hearts as a pledge, a promise, a guarantee, a down payment. So we get the Spirit, and the Spirit's not everything, but when we get the Spirit, we know there's more. There, there's a lot more that is yet coming. And so for the, for the, for the uh, apostle to say, we have the first fruits of the Spirit, it's as if to say, the believer has the appetizer, but the main meal is still coming. Now, I don't know about you at your house, but at our house on Thanksgiving Day, you know, we get all this stuff, we get all the food ready, pull the turkey out, and, and you got to let the turkey rest before you carve it, right? So it cools down a little bit, carves easier when it's a little cooler, as well as all the juices kind of get soaked up and so on. So we pull the turkey out, and we take the lid off, we let it ventilate, and then we go to work on a few other things, Right? And and at our house, I don't know how it works at your house, but at our house, when the cook turns his back, that a Turkosaurus shows up. And 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 it would be one thing if it was just carved very nicely, but it's like a stab of the fork into the heart of that breast meat and all that pretty brown meat, and and there's a chunk of meat that's gone. Why? Because she, I'm giving a little bit away here, she wants a morsel about what is dinner going to be like. And, th- and that, that serves as an enticement to what dinner will be like in a few minutes. That's what the Spirit of God is. He's, he's the foretaste. He's the first taste. This is, this is, what, this is what, this, what the full measure of your salvation will be like, except even more than this. And, and notice that the first fruit is the Spirit of God Himself. The Spirit has come to live in us. And, and what is this, what does the Spirit do? Well, the whole chapter, chapter 8, is about the working of the Spirit, but just consider a couple of things that the Spirit of God does. In chapter 8, verse 13, If you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. This Spirit comes to live within us so that we can kill the deeds of the flesh. We can push back against sin. We no longer have to sin, but we can do things that are righteous. That's the work of the Spirit of God within us. And then when we do that, we are being led by Him and we are God's sons. And in fact, this is the testimony of the Spirit of God. Verse 16, the Spirit testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. We, we're pushing back against sin. We're crucifying sin. We're killing sin. And the Spirit says, that is sign that you are God's Son. That's the Spirit of God at work within you. Then he comes, Romans chapter 12 tells us, and he transforms our mind. He tells us in chapter 12 verse 3 that he begins to pour out his gifts on us so, so that he not only is living within us to transform us inside out, but he also does things through us that we could never do on our own. And he produces effects and fruits and transformation and power that comes through the exercise of our gifts that would have never happened apart from his working in us. And that, friends, is just the first part of our salvation. Oh, friends, if the Spirit has come to be in us, and if the Spirit has done all those things and far more, will our salvation be left incomplete? No! And, 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 and the, 
the, the apostle wants us to know that we have the Spirit, and even while we live in a suffering world, the fact that we have the Spirit is an affirmation that we will receive everything else that has been given to us as a promise of our salvation. Says John Chrysostom, the early church father, if the first fruits are enough to free us from our sins and give us righteousness and sanctification, consider how wonderful the whole inheritance must be. Oh friend, this verse is a reminder to not despair over our suffering, but to recognize what we already have from God while we are suffering. This verse tells us that the presence of the Spirit is a greater comfort to us than the removal of our suffering. The fact that we have the Spirit promises that we'll get everything else. And the fact that we have the Spirit is better news to us than if our suffering is removed. Oh friend, we have the Spirit. A third thought that we need to be thinking on is that we have a longing. We have a longing. Notice what he says in verse 23. We ourselves having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves. Did you notice as I read that just how emphatic the pronouns are? We ourselves, we ourselves grown within ourselves. This is, this isn't just, this groaning isn't just a problem of creation. It's our groaning. It's our longing. It's, it's our desiring. We, we are alongside creation. Fellow sufferers with creation, if you will, longing for something different. Notice also that this groaning is private and it's, it's not public. It's, it's internal and not external. Notice, notice he says, um, that the groaning is within ourselves. This isn't complaining. This is this isn't. Oh, you don't. You just don't know how bad my life is. You don't know how bad things are. You don't know how bad I'm suffering. No, 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 no. That's not what this is. This is this is the inward sigh. <sighs> when will it change? When will I be changed? I so want to be different than I am. That that's what this is. This, this is that, that inward longing, that inward desiring. And notice that it's not just that we have the Spirit and we groan, but I think that Paul would have us to understand that it is because we have the Spirit that we groan. He might have said it this way, and not only this, um, even we ourselves groan within ourselves. But that's not what he said. He said even... And not only this, but we ourselves having the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan. And the sense is, we've tasted it. We've tasted what the Spirit can do. We've tasted what it means to be freed from our sin at some level, and we want more. We want more of the Spirit. We want more of His fruit. We want more of His transformation. We want more of His salvation. We want the end and the finality of His salvation. So we groan for two reasons. We groan because of what we're still experiencing in the fallen world. We groan inwardly because of what we are inwardly. This is this is my problem, and this is my sin, and I am sick of my sin, and I want this sin to change. And then, and then we groan because we're wanting something better. We're we're wanting our glorification. We're we're looking forward to what is coming. This is this is what the apostle Paul talks about in Second Corinthians chapter five. He says, "Indeed, in this house, in this body, we groan." longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven. Verse 4, For indeed, while we are in this tent, this body, we groan, being burdened, because we do not want to be unclothed, but to be clothed so that what is mortal will be swallowed up by life. We've tasted what life is like, and we want the whole thing. I want the finality of my salvation. Says John Stott, This is our Christian dilemma. 
caught in the tension between what God has inaugurated by giving us His Spirit and what He will consummate in our final adoption and redemption, we groan with discomfort and longing. The indwelling Spirit gives us joy. The coming glory gives us hope. But the interim suspense gives us pain. He's exactly right. Let me just ask the question. What are your longings and desires? What are you wanting? What are you desiring? Paul, Paul would say from these verses, and we could infer from these verses, that, that we ought to have at least three longings. One is the longing to, to, to desire redemption because of our holy discontentment with sin. We, we have a holy, sanctified dissatisfaction with our life of sin and we want it to be removed from us more than we want the burdens of the world to be removed from us. I, I would rather have my sin taken from me than my tax bill taken from me. I would rather have my sin taken from me than my cancer taken from me. I would rather have my sin taken from me than my difficult relationships taken from me. I, I want to be changed inwardly. I, I want to grow in my grief over my sin and what my sin has done to others. And secondly, we should long for redemption because it is the fulfillment of our creation and salvation. We should, we should be looking ahead because it is that for which we were created and it is that for which we have been saved and sanctified. And thirdly, we should long for these things because our suffering may be one of God's instruments to make us discontent with this world. And friends, we're far too content with this world. We want far too much out of this world. And we need discontentment with it. Our suffering may be the thing that God is using to pry our fingers off of the things that we're so desperately trying to hold on to. D.A. Carson has said, Is not some of the pain and sorrow in this life used in God's providential hand to make us homesick for heaven, to detach us from this world, to prepare us for heaven, to draw our attention to himself and away from the world of merely physical things? We need to think in new ways. We need to think that we have suffering. We need to think on the fact that we have the Spirit. We need to think on a longing that is honoring to the Lord. Fourthly, we need to think on the fact that we have adoption. We, we look back, words, and we look at our life, we look at our sin, and we say, I want to be freed from that. And we also look forward to what salvation will be like in the future. And that's, that's what the Apostle points to in verse Uh, At the end of verse 23, he says, We groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons. We we want our adoption. Now, it's true, we already are adopted. We we, we have been adopted by God. The, The paperwork has been completed. Everything is signed, sealed, and delivered. We are God's sons. We're legally sons of God. That's verse 14. These are sons of God. We can rightly, verse 15, go to God and call Him Daddy, and it's not blasphemous. We can go into the presence of Almighty God, the Creator of all things, the One who is eternal, the One who is transcendent above all things. We can go to Him, and it's not blasphemy to say, Dad, I need some help. Will you help me? And he says, yes. Verse 16, the Spirit is testifying through our mortification of sin to our sonship to God. Verse 17, we are legitimate heirs of God, and yet there are some benefits to the sonship we haven't received yet. We we haven't gotten everything that we're going to get from this sonship. And Paul says at the end of verse 23, we're waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons. We want the fulfillment of that. And specifically, he says, we want the redemption of our bodies. 
We want our bodies to be changed. Why? Because, because inwardly we're already being renewed and changed and transformed. Outwardly, my paraphrase of Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, everything's falling apart. But inwardly, there's transformation, there's renewal, there's growth, there's progress. And we want this body to be changed. We, we want this, this body to be transformed. Now, I'm not saying with that, that that there is something inherently wrong with my body. My body is not inherently immoral. I mean, it's just a hand, right? There's nothing moral or immoral about a hand. It just does its thing. But what it does is either moral or immoral, isn't it? The hand is amoral. But what it does, that determines morality. Or morality is revealed through that. And what Paul says is, I want this hand to only do moral things. Our bodies, our bodies is where the flesh of sin, our fleshliness is worked out. And Paul says, I want the place where my sinful tendencies are worked out, my body. I want that to be changed. And that is exactly what will happen in the new creation. So Ray Ortland, in his helpful book, Supernatural Living for Natural People, says this, In the pleasant experiences of this life, we sigh, Oh, I wish this would last forever. But it never does. When we enter into our inheritance, we will say, Oh, I wish this would last forever. And it will. So living for the Lord and even paying a price to follow Him, we have nothing to lose and everything to inherit. If we sense the greatness of the glory to come, we cannot be typical modern people grasping, self-serving, and timid. This gospel confidence makes us more than conquerors through the One who loved us enough to buy all of this for us as at His own expense, and pour it all into our laps as a gift of grace. Oh, brothers, we have, we have our adoption. And and, and now what we want is everything else that comes with that adoption. But rest in it. When you're suffering, you are still adopted if you belong to Christ. We have adoption. Fifthly, he says, we have hope. We have hope. Verse 24. For in hope we have been saved. Now notice the first first word there in verse 24. For, that means because, and he's tying verse 24 to verse 23, right? So we are groaning, we are longing, we are waiting, we want redemption of our bodies. Why? Because... In hope, we have been saved. In other words, we have been saved for that very purpose. We've been saved in hope. Now, the word hope is is an important New Testament word. It's used 53 times in the New Testament. It's used 36 times by the Apostle Paul. It's used 13 times in this book alone by the Apostle Paul. And when when Paul and the other New Testament writers use this word, they, they simply mean... We hope from the standpoint of we are looking forward to something with confident expectation of its fulfillment. We expect it to happen and we are confident it will happen. Biblical hope is not someone pessimistically wanting something that cannot realistically happen. As in, I hope I win the lottery. You ain't winning the lottery. Not going to happen. That is not... Biblical hope. I hope I win the lottery. Biblical hope is an anchor. Biblical hope is rooted. It is certain. Now, we don't see it yet. Notice he says in verse 24, but hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what we, what he already, for what he already sees. If you have it, it's not a hope. (laughs) This week, sweet, I, I sent my, you can get a little sense of my humor or sense of humor from this. I, I sent my family a text this week, Wednesday, late afternoon, and said uh, something like, just saying, 
exactly three weeks from right now, all the presents will be open, dinner will be done, the naps will be finished, Christmas is over. Um, My family responded with a little more pessimism than you did. Thanks for the encouragement, Dad. And what's my point? On December 25th at 5 o'clock, you don't hope for Christmas. Why? (laughs) Because you've got it. It's all around you. Right? You don't hope for the package that's coming from Amazon when it's sitting on your front porch when you get home. Why? Because you have it. And the Apostle Paul says, we have the certainty that this hope is coming It's just we haven't seen it yet. But that doesn't make it any less certain. It is coming. We're just waiting to see it. Well, friends, this is this is encouragement for us. It is a certainty that God will fulfill and bring about everything that He has promised. We haven't arrived at maturity yet, but we will. God will produce complete maturity. This is an antidote to the lament, things will never get better. You ever say that? Things are just never going to get better. I'm always going to have this illness. I'm always going to have this propensity to say the wrong thing with my mouth. I'm always going to struggle with anger. I'm always going to struggle with things will never get better. And friends, this is the antidote to that. It will get better. God will transform. God will change. Because we have hope, and our hope is not wishes and dreams, but our hope is confidence and security. It's still in the future, but that does not mean it's uncertain. It is no more, excuse me, there is nothing more certain than our future because of the one who guarantees it, that's the Father, and the one who secured it, that's Jesus Christ, And the one who secures it through his down payment, that's the Holy Spirit. Nothing, nothing can take away our hope. Now we might choose sinfully to live hopelessly, but that doesn't change our hope if we are in Christ. Nothing can take away our hope. No catastrophe, no evil, no enemy, no death. Nothing can take away our hope. We know our hope is alive because the Savior who gave it is alive. So Chrysostom says, what Paul means is that we are not to expect everything to be given to us in this life, but we are to have hope as well. We have hope. There's a final aspect or final thought that we need to be thinking. We have adoption, we have hope. Sixthly, we have perseverance. Verse 25 And if we hope, but if we hope for what we do not see, so we're just waiting, we're just longing, we're anticipating, we are confident, it is coming, we just haven't seen it yet. Then he says, with perseverance, we wait eagerly for it. Now, some of your translations don't have the word perseverance, but they say something like, with patience, we eagerly wait, or we wait eagerly for it. And and that's acceptable. Um But patience doesn't really capture the full sense of the word that's in the original text. It's more than just a passive waiting. It It is an aggressive pursuit. Perseverance denotes standing up and moving forward even though you are under a heavy load. I always, when I see that word in the New Testament, I always think about a fullback that hits the line of scrimmage in a football game and he hits the line of scrimmage and there are three 300-pound defensive tackles that jump on him. And as the camera moves in close, you see his legs and they're just churning. They're going slow, but they're moving. He's bearing up. He's got this massive load on him and he's bearing up, moving forward. That's perseverance biblically. It doesn't suggest that God takes away the burden. It doesn't suggest that the trials go away. We have suffering. But in the midst of that suffering, when we look forward to Christ and our redemption and our salvation and what God will produce in us to change us, to make us like Jesus Christ, we keep moving forward. 
My friends, understand what Paul is encouraging and exhorting. We will maintain hope and perseverance by looking forward to redemption. And we will become hopeless if we look at the circumstances in which we find ourselves. We, 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 we need to be farsighted. And some of us are way too nearsighted. We're looking way too much at, at what we have now. Grasping and clinging and wanting and holding and tugging and wrestling, trying to keep what we have now. Friends, you're going to lose it now. But only what is in eternity, only the redemption will satisfy. Look towards it. The story is told about John Chrysostom that illustrates this principle. When Chrysostom, the church father, was brought before the Empress Eudoxia, she threatened him with banishment if he insisted upon his Christian independence as a preacher. You cannot banish me, he said, for this world is my father's house. But I will kill you, said the Empress. No, you cannot, for my life is hid with Christ in God. I will take away your treasures. No, you cannot, for my treasure is in heaven and my heart is there. But I will drive you away from your friends and you will have no one left. No, you cannot, for I have a friend in heaven from whom you cannot separate me. I defy you, for there is nothing you can do to harm me. Oh, friends, that's us. Is there suffering? Absolutely. But we must look to the future and we must realize all that God has provided for us and the certainty of our hope. And when we have that, then we will persevere in faithfulness. Yes, you have suffering, but there is a provision through the Spirit of God for our suffering so that we can endure. And the believer's life will be a life of suffering, even at times persecution. But the believer's life is also one of great hope. Confidence in the certainty of the completion of our salvation. Oh, friends, we've tasted, we've tasted something of our salvation. We've experienced the Holy Spirit working within us. And that's the smallest morsel of what God will do to finish our salvation. Let that taste Linger in your mouth so that you long for the meal that is to come in glory. Our Father, we thank you for the reminder of your provision for us. Thank you that while we suffer in this world, we are not hopeless in this world. And thank you that you have provided for us everything we need so that we can walk boldly and confidently in this world. Would you change us? Some of us are not doing well. Some of us are holding too tightly to this world. Some of us are too despondent when we lose things in this world. Would you make us to have our hands liberated from the things we are grasping so that we will learn to grasp Christ and our salvation alone? and be satisfied. In His name we pray. Amen.